Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Marty Thompson. Join me as we pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we come before you because you're the God of the universe and we need you. And Lord, we want to hear from your word this morning. We've come here not by chance, not by purpose, but you have a plan for each one of our lives and you've brought us here today. And so, Father, as we open your word, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Our subject this morning is an intriguing one. It is called, What Was Nailed to the Cross? And this is a a topic which I'm going to invite you to write down the texts. We're going to be looking at a number of texts in our Bible study this morning. And I want you to to check on me to make sure that I'm teaching what's in the Bible. Can you? And when I say, can you say amen, that simply means, do you agree? And so if I say, can you say amen to that? And you say amen, that means, yes, I agree. So can you say amen to that? That you're going to write down the text to make sure that what we're teaching today is found in the Bible. Can you say amen to that? Amen, or I wasn't totally convinced, but okay. Well, our subject that we've been looking at, which this is the second sermon in this in this series, which is which I've entitled "Why Me?" Looking at the question of why would Jesus do all of that for me? Why would He go to such lengths to save just one person? And the quote from from the song that we sang earlier today: "Amazing love, and can it be that you, my God, should die for me?" It's 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 the aim of this series is for us to get an understanding of 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 what Christ has done for us and what we need to do in in order to be saved in order to respond uh, appropriately and 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 properly to what Christ has done for us. But our subject this morning is what was nailed to the cross and and really this is a subject which can be quite divisive in terms of its content because Many Christians disagree on this very point that we're going to be looking at today, but it's my prayer that as we look at God's Word, that it will be 100% clear in your mind and in my mind as to what, what the Bible tells us was nailed to the cross. To begin with, I want to read a, a quote from John Wesley. He's recounting, John Wesley was, was a great Christian man who, who lived in the 17th century, sorry, the 18th century. And, um, and he was the father of what's called the Methodist movement. And John Wesley wrote, uh, describing his conversion experience, and he says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and had saved me from the law of sin and death. And this morning I want to ask a question, and that is, does being saved from the law of sin and death mean that as a Christian I no longer need to keep God's law of love? This is the question, and I, and to begin with, I want to go straight to the Bible, Matthew five seventeen. I won't turn there, but you can write it down. Jesus says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, the law referring to the writings of Moses, the prophets referring to the writings of the prophets. I did not come to destroy 
but to fulfill. Jesus makes it very clear to us that he did not come to destroy the law or the prophets. Commenting on this verse, John Wesley, the same man who said that Christ has saved me from the law of sin and death, he wrote these words. He said, the ritual or ceremonial law delivered by Moses to the children of Israel, containing all the injunctions and ordinances which related to the old sacrifices and and service of the temple, our Lord indeed did come to destroy, to take away, to dissolve, to utterly abolish. This handwriting of ordinances, our Lord did blot away, sorry, did blot out, take away, and nail to his cross. But the moral law, he goes on to say, contained in the Ten Commandments and enforced by the prophets, he did not take away. It was not the design of his coming to revoke any part of this law. Every part of this law must remain in force upon all mankind and catch this and in all ages as not depending either on time or place or any other circumstance liable to change. And that's found in John Wesley Sermon 25. This is what John Wesley says. And, and I think that, you know, we're going we're gonna to dig into this, into this text. The reason sometimes it's good to quote some of these, these men and, and people who have gone before us is because these were, these were people that we look to as being godly people who, who studied the Bible. And so we're not saying that that's authority, but it's very interesting how John Wesley understood that perspective. Today we're going to be looking at the sermon is going to be in three parts. The first part, we're going to understand that the ceremonial law, what what it was about and the fact that it was nailed to the cross. We're going to see how, secondly, how the moral law points us to the cross. And thirdly, we're going to discover how our sins have been nailed to the cross. And this is going to be good news to us today. Can you say amen to that? So turn with me in your Bible to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. The book of Colossians is in the New Testament. Um, It is one of the letters which a man named Paul, who used to hate Christians and and persecute them, but then he became a Christian. He wrote this letter to a church in a place called Colossae. And so we're reading from Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to read, just begin with verses 13 and 14. Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 and 14, the Bible says, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, sorry, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In summary, these verses are basically saying that we have a problem. And our problem is that we are dead in trespasses. That means we are spiritually dead. But the good news is that Jesus has made us alive through forgiving every single one of our sins and through wiping out the handwriting of ordinances, which was against us through his death 
on the cross. There is a parallel passage to these verses that we've just read, and it's found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And I'll, I'll read that. It's just up there on the screen for us, and you can see the comparison, the closeness between these two uh, passages of Scripture. It says in Ephesians two fourteen and 15, For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Again, this is quite a wordy uh, text, but I want to break this down by looking at the context to which Paul was writing this. Before the coming of Christ and even after the coming of Christ, there was a strong separation between two groups of people. The first were the Jews. The second were the Gentiles. A Gentile was anyone who was a non-Jew. So most of us here today, I would suspect, we would be Gentiles. We're We're not Jewish. And there was this strong separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. For example, the Jews and the Gentiles did not worship together. There was a middle wall that separated the the court of the Gentiles and and where the Jews were allowed to, to worship. There was this sense of superiority that the Jews had where they believed that they were basically the only ones who would who would be saved. And there was this there was this separation and really that's what that's what this verse is referring to when it talks about the middle wall of separation there were things in the jewish system the jewish religious system that caused the separation between the jews and the gentiles in addition to the 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 ceremonial law which god had given to moses the jews had added all kinds of unnecessary additions and restrictions so that the whole religious system and, and and religion became a heavy burden in fact in matthew chapter 23 and verse 4 jesus said speaking of the religious leaders he says for they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers and so what's interesting as you as we consider it the moral law is what God gave to Moses. He wrote it on, on tablets of stone. And it's we refer to it as the Ten Commandments. It's found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17, and also in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So we have the moral law. and But the Jews, they, they, they looked at all of the writings of Moses, and this, you know, this was officially, you know, collated together, I think around the third or fourth century, the 613 mitzvot. A mitzvot is a commandment. That's a lot of commandments, isn't it? Ten commandments, okay, I can, I can understand and I can remember ten commandments, but 613, that's a lot of commandments. And so they bit by bit went through the writings of Moses and they, and they figured out this is what we should do here, this is what we should do there. And by the way, many of those things are wonderful. I've read through them and they're, they're, they're good laws. Then they added even more to that, the rabbinical laws. And, and the mindset was that if, 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 we can, 
in order to keep the moral law, we need to add these extra laws so that we don't get close to breaking the law. One of the words that is used in Hebrew, which refers to sin, it it conveys this idea of stepping over a boundary. Does that kind of make sense? Like you've gone into uh, forbidden territory and you've broken the law. And so therefore, in order to protect the law, they, they created all these other laws to protect them from keeping from from breaking God's law. You can see the the logic behind it, but it was it was it was very it was a very faulty system. And so when a when a gentile and non-Jew would come to worship God and they would see this enormous list of requirements, it not only turned them away from the Jewish religion, hear me this morning, it turned them away from worshiping the true God because of the system which human beings had made. And I wonder if anything similar would, like that would possibly happen today. Thus, the entire Jewish system stood as like this barrier preventing Gentiles from accepting the worship of the true God. When Christ came, he reinstated what constituted true worship. He did away with man-made laws, not only that. When he died on the cross, he put an end to the ceremonial system with its sacrifices and its religious ceremonies. And the early church confirmed this in Acts chapter 15. Rituals like circumcision were not necessary for salvation. And the gospel went forward with great power. But there was a certain group of Christians that wanted to hold on to these Jewish laws. And they became like a divergent group. And so they started to strongly and forcefully teach that if you want to become a Christian, you want to follow, you want to follow, follow the Lord, then you still have to do all these things, including circumcision, include a whole bunch of requirements. And so when Paul writes in his letters, he is strongly opposing these false teachers who are saying you've got to do all these extra things, this whole Jewish system, basically in order to be saved. That's the context that we're dealing with when we read these verses. And so, and I want to make it very clear that although Paul very, very strongly taught that the Jewish legal system and the ceremonial system had indeed been done away with, he did not for in, in, in even hint at the fact that the moral law had been done away with. Even notice in 1 Corinthians 7.19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what does, it, what does it say? But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. That's clear, isn't it? That's a clear text. I find that very helpful. I'm a simple person. I just like to to take it from the Bible as it says. And that's what the Bible says. So this is what had happened. Let's continue on looking at the very at, at the very next verse in Colossians 2:15 to 17 some, through Christ's death on the cross it says that he disarmed principalities and powers he made a public spectacle spectacle of them triumphing over them in it so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or sabbaths which are a shadow of things to come but the substance is of Christ. Now some have used this this passage, this particular passage to suggest that the entire 10 commandments have been done away with. Others use this passage to to suggest that nine of the commandments still stand, but one in particular, the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment has been done away with. But is that really what this is saying? Well, again, it's good to look at a parallel passage, and we find a parallel passage there in Hebrews 10. 
Hebrews 10 verse 1 and verse 4, for the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins we see a connection between these two verses this idea of a shadow is is that phrase which are a shadow provides the key to understanding well what is this actually talking about well the entire jewish religious system included things like food offerings drink offerings, animal sacrifices, and sacred feasts or festivals that, they, that, they, that took place throughout the year. Those sacred festivals were often called Sabbaths because they were days on which you would do no work. Does that kind of make sense? Kind of like we have holidays today. They're days that you don't, you know, you don't, we have, we've got a long weekend coming up right now. On Monday, you don't have to go to work. And so the Jews would have these kinds of events that were symbolic and were pointing forward to things that Jesus would accomplish. And so it's important to note that, that all of these, these things, these drink offerings, these, these uh, food offerings, these festivals, these, these things, these, sacri- these sacrifices, they all formed part of what was called the ceremonial law. And the Word of God describes them as a shadow of things to come. What's that a shadow of? That's a shadow of a tree, right? But it doesn't fully, you know, it it doesn't fully represent what a tree is. It gives you a fairly good idea. It gives you a dim outline, but it's not the substance itself, is it? It's not the substance itself. A shadow has no substance, but it is a dim outline of something substantial. The Jewish ceremonies were shadows dimly outlining heavenly realities. The drink offerings, the food offerings, the animal sacrifices, the sacred festivals could never take away sin. They were instructional and they pointed forward to the awaited Messiah. This was a shadow every time you see way back in Genesis. Way back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve first sinned, God had to take a, an animal and and show them that this, this animal needed to be sacrificed as a symbol that pointed forward to the promised Messiah. God made a promise to Adam and Eve. He said, one day a Savior will come. But in the meantime, you need to take an animal you need to shed the innocent animal's blood and that is pointing forward to what the savior will do for you and you need to put faith in the fact that the savior is coming and so that was like a shadow it represented what christ was going to do and 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 so for thousands of years god's people were instructed to do this they were instructed to take a lamb if they broke god's commandments they sinned they were instructed to take an animal usually a lamb and to offer it as a sacrifice believing that that sacrifice represented the savior who was to come does that kind of make sense all right the problem was that people instead of believing in the messiah to come they started to focus more on the ceremony itself does that kind of make sense they started to become all hung up on the on the actual ritual itself and it became a, a display thing of you know how many animals can we sacrifice and look at the amazing uh, display we're putting on here and it almost became a show rather than an act of humility Josephus 
the Jewish historian who, who, who was around the time of Christ says that in the first century, the Jews uh, on one particular Passover, they sacrificed 256,500 lambs in a single day. So Jerusalem was becoming filled with the blood of innocent animals. But the problem was that people were going deeper and deeper into sin because they lost sight of what it meant. And those who were sincere in faith were were hungering. They were longing for the coming Messiah. And so one day John the Baptist, who is preaching on the banks of the Jordan, sees someone coming towards him. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that was the point. It was all pointing forward to Jesus, who was the substance. He was the one who all of these sacrifices, all of these offerings, all of these festivals, it was pointing forward to him and what he would accomplish on our behalf. And don't you want to just praise God today that we don't have to go and, and kill an innocent animal? Isn't that awesome? Jesus has wiped that away. He's nailed it to the cross. We don't have to, we're not obliged to do those things anymore. That's not what we need to do. We don't need to go on long pilgrimages to Jerusalem anymore. Jesus has nailed that to the cross. In essence, what this, what this is saying, I, I love actually the words of Albert Barnes. He's a Presbyterian commentator. And this is what he writes on this verse talking about, uh, you know, what we've just read. And, and he says this, There is no evidence from this passage that he, Paul, would teach that there was no obligation to observe any holy time. Now think about this. For there is not the slightest reason to believe that he meant to teach that one of the Ten Commandments had ceased to be binding on mankind. He had his eye on the great number of days which were observed by the Hebrews as festivals, as a part of their ceremonial and typical law, and not to the moral law or the Ten Commandments. No part of the moral law, not one of the Ten Commandments, could be spoken of as a shadow of good things to come. These commandments are from the nature of the moral law of perpetual and universal application, and that man is not a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Can you say amen to that? So I want to show you this chart. This is a chart which Pastor Barry actually showed me, and uh, it, it is a wonderful comparison of the Ten Commandments with the ceremonial law. It just shows very clearly the difference between the two. Ten Commandments were spoken by God. The ceremonial law was spoken by Moses. Ten Commandments were written by God. The, the ceremonial law was written by Moses. The Ten Commandments were written in stone ceremonial law was written in a book ten commandments were placed inside the ark of the covenant the ceremonial law was placed on the side of the ark the ten commandments were established before sin the ceremonial law was given after sin the ten commandments are holy and just and good whereas the ceremonial law is changeable weak and unprofitable not to say, by the way, I want to make a point before I go on, not to say that, that God gave them a faulty system, not at all. No, no, no. God gave them that system for a, for a purpose, for a period. It was a good system to illustrate what Christ was doing. But in and of itself, if you were to take Jesus out of the equation, it, it's, it's unprofitable. It's, 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 its profit is in its instructional nature, not in its actual thing. The Ten Commandments are everlasting. The ceremonial law finished at the cross. Ten Commandments, the law of liberty, and ceremonial law is 
against us or contrary to us. I hope that that is being clear. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles now and come with me to the book of Romans. Come with me to the book of Romans because I want to, I want you to see this in your own Bible. Again, I, I, and also as you're turning there, just on the screen, there's a picture of the ark. And t- again, the Ten Commandments written in the finger of God were placed inside the ark of the covenant. That is, that is significant. It is essentially saying that the moral law is at the heart of the government of God. And so we're in Romans chapter 3. And I want us to notice, well, what is the purpose of the moral law? The moral law was not nailed to the cross. Well, what is the purpose of the moral law? Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, the Bible says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Come with me to Romans 4.15, just over the page. It says, Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression okay it's basically saying without the law there would be no sin there would be no transgression there'd be no such thing and then come with me to romans 7 7 romans 7 7 and it says this what shall we say then is the law sin i love how paul asks these questions and then he gives us the answer is the law sin what do you say certainly not on the contrary i would have not known sin except through the law. For I would have not known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. So again and again and again, the law is described in the Bible as a mirror. So let me ask you a question. If you've been working outside, maybe you've been digging and it's, and you know, you've been in the garden and, and, and you've been sweating and you've been, you know, you've been wiping your face with, with your sort of grubby, dirty hands and you've, you've managed to, to get that dirt all over yourself and, you know, and you go inside and you look in the mirror and, and you see that you've got dirt on your face. Do you want to just rip that mirror off the wall and, and put it in the bin and you terrible mirror? Is that what you want to do? Not at all. Or would you, when you see that, that, that you've got dirt on your face, would you then proceed to lean up against that mirror and, and start to do a circular motion in order to try and scrub and remove the dirt from your face? Well, that's not going to work either. All that's going to do is make it worse and it's going to smudge the mirror. The purpose of the mirror is to reveal that we have dirt on our face, but the mirror can't wash us. The mirror can never wash us. The law can never save us. The law was made for for holy people that had never sinned. But when we sinned, it became impossible for us through obedience to the law to be saved. We needed Jesus Christ to wash us in his blood. And that's what we call, that's what we call grace. We call that, it's something that Jesus has done for us that we don't deserve, but we can receive the benefit of it if we ask for Jesus to to give that to us. The law reveals to us that we have defects. And this is not a bad thing. In fact, the fact that we have a a recognition that we have a problem means that we can find a solution. Romans 3 verse 31 says, Romans 3 verse 31, this is the last text in the book of Romans that I want us to go to. Romans 3.31 says, do we then make void the law through faith? Good question. Do we get rid of the law because we have faith now? Paul answers his own question and he says, certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law because 
The bigger the mirror, the more I recognize my need of a savior. Can you say amen to that? The more I recognize how broken I am, the more I will appreciate what Jesus has done for me. So I want to, I want to show you, I need some helpers. Um, I need some helpers for this. Rosalie, can you help me? John, can you help me? Um, John, can you help me? Do, you know, two Johns. Rianne, can you help me as well? That's four. Um, Caleb, can you come up the front and help me? That's five. Um, who else can we get here? Hamish, can I get Hamish? That's six. And I need one more. Yes, Jake, thank you. Seven. And I want you to just... Now, by the way, if you're holding a word that, that, that isn't a nice word, <laughs> there's no, no comment on that. Maybe you can change position or something. Oh, man, I feel bad, Rosalie, but you have to hold that one. Sorry. Um, let me just... Hold on a second. Let, let me hold, hold on one second. No, I'm going to have to still give you a pretty bad one. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's okay. You're willing to help me out. Okay. Let me see if I can get organized here. All right. I need you to hold that one, Rianne. I need you to hold that one for me. <laughs> it's not much better. Uh, let's, okay. I'll get, get Caleb to hold that one for me. What else have we got here? Um, yes. Okay. I need John to hold that one for me. And I need Jake to hold that one for me. Nice and make it very clear. Okay. What we have here is a lineup of, you know, we, we can see a, a connection. If we break the law, that means we've committed a crime. And if we commit a crime, that means we need to go to court. And in court, we, we face the authorities. And the authorities essentially are based on a legal system which is bound together by a government. And that government is the head of the society and the society is made up of individuals called citizens. Now, I want you to notice what happens if we, if, 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 what, if, if we do something. If we say, see you later to John, and we get rid of the law. Don't go too far because I'll need you again in just a moment. If we get rid of the law, well, then now there's no crime. If, if there's no such thing as, if there's no law that says you shall not steal and I take something, well, then there's no law against it. So there's no such thing as crime anymore. So I don't need that. If there's no crime, well, we don't need a court anymore. So I don't need that. If there's no court, there's no need for authorities. There's no need for a government. And there's no need for society. There's no need for citizens. It all falls apart if you take away the law. You think about that. It's, it's absolutely critical. We couldn't be Australian citizens if it wasn't for, for a law that exists in our country. So line up again, and I'm going to give you this one instead. That one right there. Caleb, you got that one. So put that one in front. You lined up well, John. You did well. <laughs> Jake, put that one in front. And then uh, Hamish with that one. And let's notice again, the Bible says that I would not have known sin except through the law. If, if we... If we were to get rid of the law, it says where there is no law, there is no transgression. So let's say we, 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 we agree with the, the vast percentage of, of, of those who say, you know what, Christ did away with the law. And so let's try that. Okay. And you can sit down now. So the, so the law is gone. Well, if there's no law, then there's no sin right? So Rosalie can go down as well. If there's no sin, well, then we can't be judged. We can't be judged guilty for anything. So Rianne, thank you very much. If there's no judgment that we're being 
you know, that we're guilty, well, then there's no need for grace. So see you later, Caleb. We don't need grace anymore because it's, and there's certainly no need for Jesus who provides us that grace. And if Jesus is out of the equation, then what are we doing here? We don't need a church. And we Christians, well, it's gone. So you can see very clearly that as soon as you take away the, the law of God, you basically are pulling the rug out from underneath this entire system of, of truth that God has given us in the Bible. It all falls apart if you take away the moral law. Can you say amen to that? I hope that helped to make that clear. You know, I want to ask you this question. What If you didn't believe that you needed to keep the law of God, how would that impact your Christian experience? Think about that. If you didn't believe that you had to keep the law of God, how would that impact your Christian experience? I remember meeting a young man who's a Christian young man, and we were talking about some things, and, and he, said, he shared some, some thoughts with me, and I, I said, you know, that according to the Bible, that's, that's, that's something that we're not meant to do. And, and his response to me was, yeah, but, you know, we, we can't really be expected to, to keep God's law. It's too difficult. That's an interesting thing. And, you know, so his view on, well, the law is not really that necessary. I can't really do it anyway, influenced his, him and, and caused him to basically partake in things which were clearly out of line with God's word. So it is very important how we view this. If, if we didn't believe in God's law that it was important, it would vastly impact our Christian experience. And so the next question is, is obedience legalism? Is obedience legalism? Does it mean that I'm working my way to heaven if I believe that I should obey the Ten Commandments? Is, is it legalism? The answer is, well, it kind of depends, doesn't it? It depends on whether I see the law as a checklist of things that I need to finish in order to make it to heaven. Well, then it is legalism. But if I see the law as the best possible way to live that God has given us, the best possible way to live and that Christ enables us through his spirit to keep that law because we love and we respect God, then that's not, that's not legalism. That is Christianity. Can you say amen? That's what it means to be a Christian. It actually means to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then my final question as we, before we go on to a final point is, does obedience or can obedience save us? <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Come with me to Romans chapter 5, verse 19. Can obedience save us? And you are correct. Not our obedience, no. But I want you to notice Romans 5, 19. This, this hit me right between the eyes when I, when I read this verse. And it says there in Romans 5, 19, it says, for, by, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. How important is obedience? If Jesus hadn't have obeyed, you and I would be lost forever. So obedience is absolutely critical but it's not our obedience that saves us. It's Christ's perfect obedience for us that we need to cling to with all of our heart. Let's continue on as we look at our final point, looking at how Jesus has 
dealt with our sin problem. The Bible says in John chapter 3 verse 14, it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's very interesting that that the Bible describes Jesus being lifted up on a cross, parallels that with a serpent being lifted up on a cross. What is a serpent in the Bible a symbol of? It's a symbol of Satan, isn't it? The great serpent of old called the devil and Satan. And so a serpent is, is a symbol of Satan, the originator of sin. And this is fascinating when the Bible tells us that Jesus would be lifted up this way. Because it goes on to tell us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, what does this mean? That means that there's an exchange taking place. There's an exchange taking place. It says Jesus was perfect. He was perfectly good. He lived in perfect obedience to the law of God. But we haven't. We've lived and we've made mistakes. We've had a sinful life. But God wants to make an exchange with us and give us his perfect life in exchange for our sinful life. And we accept that. We accept that when we, say, when we ask the Lord to do that for us, to, to make that exchange for us. And this is again emphasizing the point that Jesus was made sin for us. He was made sin for us so that the Bible tells us that on the cross, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, meaning my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani was, was what Jesus, that was in the language of Aramaic. This was the language of Jesus' childhood. And, this, and he cries out in desperation because he feels the separation that sin has brought. The Bible makes it very clear that it wasn't the physical torture of the cross that killed Jesus, but it was that my sin and your sin was upon him. And that great separation that sin caused broke the heart of Jesus and killed the Son of God. And Jesus went through that. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If we simply believe, if we simply give our lives into his hands, have you made that exchange? Because I want to make it very clear today that as surely as Jesus died and rose again, every sin you give to him is gone. It is forgiven. It is cleansed. It was nailed to the cross 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on Calvary. In the words of that great hymn that we're going to sing to finish with, my sin, oh, the joy of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. That hymn writer understood what was nailed to the cross. It was not the moral law. It was my sin and your sin, which the ceremonial law was a constant, basically, reminder of and a constant system which could not save us from sin, except that it pointed us to the one who could save us from sin. Have you made that exchange? How do you make that exchange? 
I want to finish with a couple of a couple of key a couple of verses, very interesting verses in Exodus. We won't turn there for time, but I encourage you to write these down and check them out. Exodus 19 verses 10 and 11. God is talking to Moses. The people are at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God is about to meet with His people, and God tells them to consecrate themselves. Interesting. Tells them to consecrate themselves. Okay, I want to come back to that. In Joshua, before the people enter over into the promised land, they cro- before they cross over the Jordan River and enter into the promised land, in Joshua 3, 5, Joshua tells the people to consecrate yourself. Consecrate yourself. Before they embarked on any great endeavor for the Lord, before they came into God's presence, a consecration needed to take place. Well, what does it mean to consecrate? To consecrate means to be fully dedicated to the Lord to serve Him. It means to be fully dedicated to the Lord to serve Him. Basically, what that means is for those who, those who consecrate themselves make a conscious decision to put away everything that they know is not in harmony with God's will. Every known sin, I'm I'm emphasizing the fact that it's known. These are not things that you're not aware of. These are things that you know. And there's a conscious giving them to the Lord, a turning away from them, a turning away and a running to Christ. That's what consecration means. You know, for some, they turn away from that which is wrong and they run to Christ and they find safety in His arms. And they find that those things that used to hold them down in the past, that they are gone. But others, they turn away and they just, 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 just crawl to Christ, just hoping that the old life will catch them. And there hasn't been a full surrender because the heart was not given to the Lord. And so this is what needs to take place. This is biblical consecration. The Bible describes it in in a very simple text, Proverbs 28 verse 13, which says, whoever tries to cover their sins and pretend that they're not a sinner will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes will have mercy. That's biblical consecration. You not only admit it, but you turn away from it. You put it away. You say, no, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to Jesus and I'm going to find safety in his arms. I want to ask the question as we this morning, what needs to be nailed to the cross in your life? Is there anything in your life? Maybe it's a habit. It could be something physical, something that you do that is, that is, that's harming you. It could be something that, that's more psychological, something that, that you keep on dwelling on, something that you keep going back to. It may be a relationship, one that is not in harmony with God's will for your life. It could be, an, it could be anger, unresolved bitterness or resentment that you're holding on to. It could be coldness or indifference. It could be a desire that's controlling you, a lust or an appetite for something that you shouldn't have. It could be lukewarmness. That, that sort of comfortable, uh, it's okay, I'm saved, I'm not too worried about them sort of attitude. It could be a failing to do the good that, that you ought to do. Because being a Christian is, is much less about what you don't do. It's much more about what you actually do. Christians do love, they do pray, they do study their Bibles, they do serve, they do make disciples. And so we need to be willing to take that to the Lord and, and trust that whatever we give to the Lord, He is more than able to handle. He's more than able to wash it away. He's more than able to cleanse. And He wants to. The Bible tells us in James 4 verse 17 that if 
those who know to do right but don't do it it is it becomes sin for them and so this is what we're talking about this morning things that we're aware of in our life that we need to give to the lord i love isaiah 53 verse 6 as we bring this message to a close isaiah 53 verse 6 says that all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way but the lord has laid on him jesus christ the iniquity of us all you know the bible tells us very clearly that jesus wants to heal us he says come to me you who are who are burdened with a great burden of guilt or shame or something that that is weighing you down and you know you can't enter into eternal life holding on to that thing and jesus says come to me i'll take that burden off you i'll give you rest i'll heal that brokenness that sin has caused i'll mend you and i'll make you whole but he gives us the invitation and he'll never force us he simply offers that, that to us and so this afternoon is as we bring this message to a close jesus simply says if you love me do what he says keep my commandments if you love me keep my commandments do you love jesus today do you love him with all your heart and all your soul do you love him because of what he's done for you on calvary and how he's coming to save you and take you into his kingdom then if that is the case and you're sincere and you really love the lord and you really want to keep his commandments and i invite you to bow your head bow your head with me as we pray and i want to say a special prayer for everybody in this in this church this morning in this place of worship who wants to do the will of god who wants to give anything to the lord that that might be causing friction or separation i want to have a special prayer for that person this morning because i don't want anyone of us to say until you have surrendered everything to jesus and so if you're sincere let's pray together father in heaven lord you see us you know us inside out you know everything about us you know the thoughts that go through our minds you know the emotions that fill our hearts lord and we just simply ask today that you would embrace us in your arms that you would wash us that you would cleanse us lord we're praying for willing hearts that are willing to give everything to you lord we're praying for for that sense of 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 seriousness that we would take what jesus did for us on the cross to heart lord renew our hearts and and may we be in the right place with you and with each other as we step forward in jesus name amen This message was made available by the Kempsey Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their Facebook page, Kempsey Adventist Church. Oh, man.
From 3ABN's album, Pillars of Our Faith, Volume 1, that was written down in stone. Up next is a song called Be Renewed from the album A New Song Collective, and it is sung by the preacher of our message today and his wife, Marty and Tanae Thompson. Rays of sunlight beaming through All creation reveals you At your word heavens made there your glory is displayed take the time to see the majesty of heaven take the time to be in the presence of the king look around and see the portrait painted just for you 
the two-tip lady, and I love to help make your life more simple. Do you ever wonder how on earth you're ever going to reach a goal? I do, but I've got two tips today to help you get there. You know, we live in the bush. Yes, the bush in Australia, where kangaroos love to eat my garden. Possums steal my flowers. Wombats burrow down in their deep holes and snakes sometimes slither past. It can be very beautiful and so peaceful, especially after rain. As I walked along recently, savouring the freshness of the eucalypt-scented air, I was thinking about a statement I'd just heard. Short steps, long vision. And I couldn't help but have it go round and round in my head. Short steps, long vision. What does that mean? Well, I've been thinking a lot about various friends, various people, various needs and now I'm thinking ha yes there's a key 
develop long vision, but take short steps to get there. The other day I went to the eye specialist and it's taken quite a few short steps that seem to take forever over the last few months to get better vision. What a blessing it is to have taken those short steps just a little bit at a time. An adjustment here, a bit more surgery there, some patience between those steps and all of a sudden, it seems like, I can see better. But it's taken somebody else's long vision and the short steps that I've had to take along the way. I'm thinking of a friend of mine who wishes, just wishes he could quit smoking. What if you want to too? What's your long vision? Here's an idea. Think about 10 things that are going to change in your life when you've quit, when you've overcome that habit. Then plan short steps to become free. Short steps, long vision. Wow, list 10 ways that your life is going to change when you're not a smoker anymore. Think about them. Keep those steps inside. Keep those wonderful ways that life is going to change inside. Keep your vision clear. One way that really might appeal is that you're going to have a bit more money in your pocket. Woohoo! You're going to have more energy. Great! You can have clearer breathing. <sighs> your food's going to taste more flavoursome and delicious. Yummo! You'll smell more attractive. Mm -hmm. Think of 10 ways that you're going to feel better when you've kicked that habit. Get that long vision. Now what if you've got a little business, some part-time business? You've got long vision but give yourself the advantage of getting clear on the small steps today that you need to take to get there. They may seem like little dolly steps, but if you have long vision, little steps are going to create your success down the road. What about your long vision for a happy home? If things aren't going really well at the moment in your home, think about some small steps that you can take today that are going to turn that situation around and make your home a happy one. Picture your long vision of a beautiful, happy home where everyone just loves to be in each other's company and where you work together on various projects and you're loving and respectful and kind. So look at the short steps that you would take to create that long vision of having a happy home. Short steps to a long vision. It might be for kicking a bad habit or having a better business or a happier home. So tip number one today is a simple one. Here it is. Get a clear picture of your long vision. What exactly will it look like? Grab those binoculars and focus the lenses till you see clearly way down the road. And tip number two is next, plan your short steps to get there. If you actually do these tips, take action today, I can guarantee that life will become simpler and what you've seen in your long vision will become a reality. If your vision is not clear, ask God for wisdom. And remember, we don't have to take these steps alone because Psalms 37.23 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delighteth in his way. So my two steps today... My two tips today are number one, get a clear picture of your long vision and remember number two, plan your short steps to get there. That's it from the two tip lady today. With short steps and long vision, your life is guaranteed to become more simple. Really truly.
It's been a pleasure bringing you this program here on 3ABN Australia Radio.